Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 378. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. This week's episode is sponsored by Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at therapynotes.com. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm your host, Laura Regan, and today I'm bringing you another episode that relates to trauma and dissociation, as we've talked about in episode 376, when I interviewed Rotem Breyer about his work and his book, The Art and Science of EMDR. And then last week, we heard a replay of my interview with Dr. Debbie Korn, who provided some really valuable, extremely valuable information that every therapist should listen to about assessing, identifying and assessing dissociation and complex trauma in general. And this week, I'm bringing you a replay of a conversation that I had a few years ago with Kathy Steele. Kathy Steele is a pioneer in trauma therapy who has done a lot of work in regard to dissociation and structural dissociation theory or the structural dissociation model. So in this week's episode, you're going to hear Kathy talking about dissociation and the structural dissociation model, which is a very, I think, useful way to conceptualize work with people who have complex PTSD. It can be used beautifully with parts work. And I hope you will find this helpful because this is something that's pretty well known in Europe, but not so much in the U.S. And I think it's really helpful. So we've made our switch over to Red Circle, as I mentioned last week. I hope you've been able to 
listen to Therapy Chat the same way you always do and haven't had any issues with it, I certainly would love to know how you feel about this change, if you have any thoughts or feelings about it at all, and feel free to get in touch with me if you do. Okay, that's it for now. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, we are going to have a highly esteemed guest and someone who I feel very honored to be able to talk to and learn from with all of you listeners. My guest today is Kathy Steele. Kathy, thank you for being my guest on Therapy Chat today. Hi, Laura. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I'm really grateful that you have given your time to me and our audience today. I know that you are a well-known author, co-author of several books and a specialist in complex trauma and dissociation. Can you just give our audience a little bit of information about yourself and your work? Sure. I am. I have a practice in Atlanta, Georgia, and I have been actually in the same private practice for almost 30 years, which has been really wonderful. And now I spend least 60% of my time doing training and about 30% doing consultation, and the rest of the time I see clients. So that's sort of how I'm, I'm working it these days. That's wonderful. And I know that people who are listening, once they start hearing this discussion, they're going to want to find out how to get in touch with you for training and consultation. So we'll, we'll give them that info at the end. The reason I asked you to be my guest on Therapy Chat is that you are someone who has really done so much to educate therapists about trauma and dissociation. And I think it's something that many therapists really don't realize mm. is a common issue. Right. And I, I, I think it's really interesting that there are so many people, particularly therapists who are on the front line, who are working, say, in mental health centers, and they see so many people who have really complex trauma, not just personal trauma, but social trauma as well, poverty, and these things have huge impacts on people. So the more we can understand about the effects of complex trauma and dissociation, dissociation being a particular kind of effect of complex trauma, the better we can actually work with our clients and, and help them to improve. Yes, because if we don't recognize that dissociation is a factor, we may be treating something and missing a whole huge aspect of what's really happening. Am I right? That's right. And so many clients come to me having had previous treatment. And, and, you know, to be honest, it was really good treatment, but it wasn't addressing their underlying dissociation. And so they continue to have a lot of difficulties. And when they get to a therapist who can actually identify it and work with it in a a rational, rational, reasonable way, the the clients are so grateful and say, this is the first time I felt fully understood. This is making a difference in my symptoms. So it's it's very important to identify dissociation. And, and that's really tough because dissociation means different things to different people. Sometimes when a when a person comes to me for consultation, they say, oh, my client is dissociating. And I always want to ask, well, what do you mean 
by dissociating. And some people will say, well, my client's spacing out. That's a very common form of, we, we might call it dissociation, but it's not necessarily related to trauma. We all space out when we're tired or preoccupied or sick or stressed. It's a, it's a normal kind of experience. But as we get more into the realm of complex trauma, the symptoms get more complicated. For example, many people who have complex trauma don't remember what happened to them, at least some of what happened to them. Yes. And this is called dissociative amnesia. And this has nothing to do necessarily with spacing out, although it can be related. So we want to really clarify what do, what do we mean when, when we say our client is dissociating. One of the other main definitions of dissociation is really these fragmentations in a sense of self. And this was actually the original definition of dissociation 150 years ago that was proposed by Pierre Janet. He's a French psychologist and psychiatrist who was really sort of the, the grandfather of dissociation. And so my colleagues and I have always returned to his work to think about the, the most original, pure definition of dissociation because things like spacing out weren't added to the definition until actually about the 1970s. Sounds like a 70s thing. <laughs> yes. Spacing out was definitely a 70s thing, but it's also happening now. But I think beginning to understand that there are many different kinds of experiences that we call dissociation and then being able to assess for them because, for example, the treatment of spacing out is different from the treatment of a fragmented sense of self. With spacing out, you really want to focus on mindfulness and being present. You want to do that with a client who also has a fragmented sense of self, but you also, in that case, really have to work to bring these unintegrated aspects of self more together into a sort of coherent, cohesive whole sense of self that, so that I can say, for example, I am B across time and context from the time I was born until my current time. That's all me. It belongs to me. And this is something that's lost in people, many people who have complex trauma and dissociation. So let me ask you, if you will, just in case those who are listening haven't really heard about the term complex trauma, can you define that in the way that you mean it for, for everyone? So we're on yeah. the same page. Complex trauma is also known as developmental trauma in that it is trauma that is chronic, pervasive, and it happens early in development from, from say, birth to the teens. And, and many people who have what we call complex trauma have had many years of trauma. Mostly we're talking about child abuse. I think complex trauma also covers other issues like war and, and political torture, those kinds of things. But mostly we use it to think about people who've been abused and neglected as children. And for you, are you including emotional abuse and neglect in that as well? I am. Emotional abuse and neglect tend to have a somewhat different trajectory than the kind of 
physical trauma or sexual trauma in which a person is held down and immobilized or they feel like their their body integrity is being threatened mm-hmm. that produces other kinds of defenses but emotional neglect can lead to pretty profound sense of disconnection from yourself depersonalization depression a sense of purposelessness i mean it's it can be pretty severe Definitely. So I think that I wanted to ask that because for many people, they may say, I didn't experience any kind of child abuse at all or, you know, war or poverty or anything. We always had everything we needed and, you know, but they still have these symptoms. And so I wanted to just give people that extra little piece. (laughs) Well, the reason they have those symptoms is because our early relationships need to be good enough that we can learn to regulate ourselves in the context of those relationships. And if we don't learn early to regulate our emotions and calm ourselves down because we have caregivers who help us with that, then we spend a lifetime being unable to regulate. And that's why many people end up using alcohol and drugs because those are sort of chemical regulators. They calm people down. So I think it's really important to know that a healthy emotional attachment is very necessary for normal growth and development of a child. So definitely the absence of that has a profound effect on children. Thank you. So now that we have a definition that we're all working with of what complex trauma is, can you say how you would define dissociation? (laughs) Yes, I certainly can. And I I think I would make a distinction. I usually make this distinction. There there are four kinds of processes that people think of as dissociative. And the first one we talked about a little bit, which was spacing out or thinking about something else and being really distracted. That's one thing. The next thing is is depersonalization, where I, I don't feel in my body. I don't feel like things are real around me. Maybe I'm walking around like I feel like I'm in a fog or in a dream or some people describe it as I'm on a stage in a play and I'm watching myself. That's a a perceptual kind of issue that is often related to trauma. The third thing that dissociation is sometimes called is a physiological shutdown when people are, are really threatened if we go back to an animal model, if if a deer is being chased by a lion and the lion catches the deer, the deer will actually collapse. And we see possums do the same thing. Their whole physiology shuts down in an effort to protect them from being from feeling physical pain when they're attacked and they have no hope of escape. And so some people call this physiological state dissociation. But what we know about dissociation proper, which is if we go back to good old Pierre Genet, we really see that there is a fragmentation or division or dissociation, as words are used interchangeably, a dissociation in the sense of self or in the the personality. And of course, self and personality are not things. I can't pull out something and say, well, here's myself that you can see, or here's my personality. They're mental representations. 
But nevertheless, they're representations of sort of enduring ways of being. And if you if we take the example of a young child who is being sexually abused at night or perhaps physically abused very severely, and then he or she has to get up the next morning, sit at the breakfast table with the same person who's been abusing them, act like everything's okay, and go off to school and go about daily life. There's no way for them to continue to hold that terror and pain and betrayal and go on with daily life. So they have to find a way to separate it. And this is where dissociation has its onset at these kind of breaking points of, I cannot begin to carry this into my daily life and I have to leave it behind in order to continue to cope. So people begin to get the split between their self that is really stuck in the trauma as though it's still happening and their self that is trying desperately to go on with normal life while still avoiding the trauma. So that is sort of the definition of what my colleagues, my co-authors and I call structural dissociation. Not that there's a literal structure inside, but it's structural in terms of an organization. It's how we organize ourselves when we become too overwhelmed by trauma to continue and that trauma happens over and over and over again in the context of a normal daily life, which is really different from the context of, say, a war where everything around you is crazy. This is a child who's bouncing back and forth between a crazy, horrific experience and going to school like nothing has happened and not being able to talk about it. So that is what we think of in a kind of nutshell as what we call structural dissociation. And this is something that you will see in clients who have complex PTSD and certain dissociative disorders. There are two certain dissociative disorders. One is called the mouthful, other specified dissociative disorder or OSDD. And the one that is known because of its terrible media portrayals is called DID, or Dissociative Identity Disorder, in which case people do have these alternating identities. But there's so many myths around that particular disorder that it's terribly misunderstood and people don't even know what to look for in the disorder. So true. I mean... People, you know, we have these exaggerated portrayals or just completely inaccurate portrayals that are in right. films and, you know, even news, sometimes news reports. And if the therapist has that as what they think DID looks like, of course, they're not really seeing that in their clients. But that's right. That is very rare. I think I've seen like four cases like that in my lifetime of, of specializing in this area. So I know there's kind of a common belief that DID and dissociative disorders are extremely rare. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard therapists say you won't ever see one in your lifetime. Well, and I know that's not true. Right. I've only been a therapist for been out of school for nine years and I've worked with a few people who had those diagnoses. So how common do you what's your stance on how common that is? Well, it's not just my stance. There have been prevalent studies all around the world. Um, which what are the facts? Important. That's what yeah. I should have said. Yeah. What are the what are facts? The facts? <laughs> and the facts are that OSDD 
is approximately 6% of the general population, and that is about the percentage of the general population that has major depression. Oh. So that's pretty common. Yeah. So this is sort of the lesser form of DID, not the more extreme, the OSDD. And then when we get to DID, there have been various studies that show this between 1% and 4%, I think 1% to 2% of the general population, which is slightly more than the population who has schizophrenia. Okay. So if we think about the prevalence of major depression and schizophrenia, well, wow, you know, then we're, we're really seeing that quite a number of people have this disorder in the general population. And then if we move up to populations who come to therapy, addiction populations, eating disorders, people who are just coming for childhood trauma, you know, then the rates are much higher in those clients because they're, they're, they're coming from the highly traumatized group of, of people out of the general population. That makes so sense. It's much, yeah, it's much more common than therapists recognize Except that therapists have never, most therapists have never, ever been taught how to assess for it. Exactly. So can you talk about that a bit? Right. I mean, that's a, that's a kind of long conversation, but I'll talk about a couple of categories of symptoms that you would want to look for. And the first category is amnesia. And the most common amnesia that we see is people who are coming who are saying, you know, I know bad things happen to me, but I don't really remember anything bet- between the ages of four and eight. Right. Right. We know people don't remember much, if anything, before the age of three. And they don't all have a whole lot of clear memories before the age of five. But by then, we would expect them to have a pretty continuous set of memories. So people will come and say, you know, I've really, I think I've blocked it out or I have a memory that's like Swiss cheese, Mm -hmm. I have black holes that I don't really, people have told me stories and that's how I can tell you what happened to me. So we're looking for amnesia in the past. What we're looking for in dissociative identity disorder often is also some degree of amnesia for the present time. And so there are specific questions to ask. For example, do you lose time in the present? And a client might say yes. And then I would really want to know, well, are you losing time because you're spacing out? That's one issue, which doesn't indicate the person has the ID. Or are you losing time because you're acting in the world without recognizing what you're doing? And so you find things that you've done that you know you must have done, but you don't remember doing. Or you find things that you've bought at the store that you know you must have bought, but you don't remember buying. These these are kind of significant, frightening experiences for clients, and they're often ashamed to tell you. They often have lived with this amnesia for so long, they don't recognize that they ought to be sharing this as a symptom. Sometimes people wake up during the night and they, in a, in a different state of mind, they're drawing or they're writing, and they wake up and find these drawings and writings that are very disturbing to them. And they say, I must have done it, but I have, I, I have no recollection of doing it. 
So that's one category of symptoms, these amnesia symptoms. Really important category of symptoms are symptoms that actually overlap with what we're used to thinking of as psychotic symptoms. And these are symptoms, for example, of hearing voices. Typically, therapists have thought of hearing voices as a psychotic process. But we now know that many people, even in the healthy population, hear different kinds of voices. And it's the quality of the voices that we're concerned with and the impact of those voices in everyday life. And so people who are dissociative often hear voices of different parts of themselves internally. For example, they might hear a child crying or they might hear a very berating, critical voice screaming at them that sounds very much like their abusive father. So hearing voices is a, is a signal in people who have complex trauma that you need to further assess for dissociation. Feeling like your thoughts are withdrawn. Like one of my clients would say, somebody just took that thought away from me. Mm. And it's a strange thing to say. Now, of course, I lose my train of thought and I say, oh, I just forgot what I was going to say. But it doesn't, for me, that doesn't have this jarring kind of frightening experience that my client had, that somebody jerked that thought out of my mind and won't let me say it. Yeah. So it's a different, the quality of it is different. A feeling like I, I have an emotion, but it's not my emotion. One of my clients, for example, would cry and say, water is coming out of my eyes, but I'm not sad at all. Or that or one of my clients says, that's somebody else's sadness. So you can begin to see how these symptoms, which sound kind of crazy in some way, begin to make sense if we think of these are different aspects or parts of a person that are just more separated than they should be. And they need to find a way to be more coherent. So we're not talking about a person having different personalities or different people inside. It's not like that at all. It's just these discontinuities in experience that a, a good therapist can really help the client begin to bridge those discontinuities to feel safe to bridge them. And over time, accept all of these aspects as parts of me. Like one of my clients, as she was beginning to integrate some of these parts, she said, oh, that little girl, that seven-year-old girl is me. And what happened to her happened to me. Mm -hmm. And that's a huge realization that a person hasn't been able to make while they're in the middle of their complex PTSD or dissociative disorder because those disorders are meant to help the person separate from the trauma to go on with daily life. Right. Protecting them. That's right. Running a group private practice has been a challenging and rewarding experience. And one thing that has made it so much easier is Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. If you're coming from another EHR, like I did, Therapy Notes makes the transition incredibly easy, importing your demographic data free of charge so you can get going right away. My team has found Therapy Notes very easy to learn. 
therapists, we've all had that moment. You wake up in the middle of the night. Oh my gosh, did I do my notes? Well, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you use therapy notes. Therapy notes makes it easy to write your notes, get them done quickly, but thoroughly. My group practice has used therapy notes for six years and everyone always finds it easy to use. But the best thing is if you do need help, you can call their customer service number and a person answers the phone. And anytime I've ever had to use it, which is maybe three times in the past six years, my issue has been resolved easily with a cheerful demeanor in 15 minutes or less. So I highly recommend Therapy Notes. And don't forget, go to therapynotes.com and use promo code chat to get two free months. Learn, it's intuitive. The customer support is second to none. And that's one of the things that has kept me a Therapy Notes customer for several years now. Anytime I've needed to contact Therapy Notes for help with an issue I couldn't figure out on my own, I've been able to get through to someone and resolve the issue within 15 minutes, 99% of the time. Find out what more than 100,000 mental health professionals already know. Try Therapy Notes for two months absolutely free. Just click on the link in the show notes or enter the promo code chat at therapynotes.com. So a question's coming up for me right now, just in the way you are discussing OS, dissociative disorders, disorder, and DID. I've heard people say that dissociative disorders can be on a spectrum and DID is kind of at one side of the spectrum. Yes. And I work with many people who have complex trauma and who do have kind of the fragmentation, but there's more kind of co-consciousness or awareness with it. And it's not, it's not separate. That's right. It, it is separate and it isn't separate. It's kind of a weird mind bending thing because a person can say, well, I, I visualize this inner, this inner child that's like three years old and she's cowering in a corner and I know that's me, but it doesn't feel like me, right? Yeah. And so there's some some separation, but not total separation, as opposed to a client with DID who would say, well, there's this three-year-old and that's not me at all. I don't even know who she is. Or not only that, but I hate her and I don't want anything to do with her because she should have stopped that abuse and she didn't. Mm. So it is on a continuum, this continuum of being able to accept and realize that what happened happened to me, that I have certain feelings about it, that I have certain experiences. So the more a person can acknowledge that those imaged representations of self, like a teenager or a, a child part, is me, the, the closer they get to integration. Okay. Thank you for saying that, because I just wanted to have my mind following along with you without a question that was like making me not be able to take it fully in. <laughs> right. And I, those of us who aren't dissociative can really relate to this because it is on a continuum. I can have a day where let's say I'm irritable and I'll say, I just wasn't myself today. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, then who was I? <laughs> <laughs> so that statement, I wasn't myself is a statement about 
gee, I have to really work on integrating and accepting the fact that sometimes Kathy Steele is irritable. Even though that's not her normal state, it is one of her states. And so I have to accept more that, well, indeed, that is me. Right? Right. We can say that wasn't like me to do that. But of course, it may not be like our usual state of mind, but it still was me who did it. So there are these little minor lapses in our sense of self because self is not a unitary construct or idea. Our self is sort of this conglomerate that we put together of all of our experiences across time and across situations. And myself is always changing and adapting so self is this really fluid, dynamic construct that we we sort of too often think of as this singular thing, entity that we were born with. And that's not at all the case of what self really is. Oh, thank you for that. So I know I kind of interjected with the categories of symptoms that you were describing. Mm-hmm. Was that a complete... Oh, no. Description of what you wanted to say on that. No, not at all. I think that we, what we really want to look for is amnesia is a criteria for DID. So there must be some degree of amnesia in order to have DID. People with OSDD, the sort of lesser form, aren't required to have amnesia, but they may have it. And people with complex PTSD may have it. But what we're looking for is a kind of sufficient fragmentation in the sense of self or personality so that the client is having symptoms of not being in control of their behavior, their feelings, their sensations. So they're either having intrusions of those things or they're they're losing those experiences. And I'll give some examples to be clear. An intrusion of a feeling would be like my client saying, well, there's sadness in their tears, but it's not my sadness. Mm -hmm. So that's an intrusion of sadness that doesn't feel like mine. It's coming from another part of me. I might have as a, a dissociative client, the intrusion of physical pain that's like a partial memory of the trauma, like the physical pain part of it. But it does, it just feels like it comes out of the blue and has absolutely no context. That again is an intrusion from another part of self. I can have the intrusion of that voice. So those are the intrusions. The losses would be things like a, a client of mine would go into the kitchen and she would stand at the edge of the kitchen and just start to cry because she said she would walk to the kitchen and all of a sudden the kitchen looked really huge to her and she had the experience of not knowing how to cook or fix food. And so she ended up having to get all these ready-made things like yogurt or granola bars or something to eat because whenever she went to the kitchen, we lost the ability to figure out how to cook. And this this actually was related to the intrusion of a child part mm. who didn't know how to cook and that not being able to cook had something to do with her neglect and abuse. But it intruded on the client so that she actually lost her ability to cook. Wow. So that's one example of a loss. Another example is 
a client can say that she feels numb in her body. And this numbness, this anesthesia in your body is a symptom of dissociation. So I, I had a client once who said, I don't feel my body except for my hands. And she would touch her body and say, it's just numb. It's like touching somebody else's body. I don't feel it at all. So that's a loss of sensation. So when we're looking at these things, and there are these long lists of these kinds of intrusions and losses that you can check with your clients, these are the kind of things we're wanting to look for. We're also wanting in dissociative disorders to make sure that the person also has symptoms of PTSD because dissociative disorders are sort of an extreme form of post-traumatic stress disorder. So they're going to be having intrusion, numbing, and hyperarousal, and sometimes hypoarousal related to the trauma. So it's a, it's a very long list. There are, cert- there are definitely places people can get those lists to learn to do good clinical interviews. There are some measurement instruments you can use. I think it takes some skill to use them, but you can. The most common one out there is the DES, called the Dissociative Experiences Scale. And it's a fine screening tool, but it doesn't tell you if somebody has a dissociative disorder. And it it could, you could get a high score on it just because you're very, very spaced out, not because you have actually have a dissociative disorder. So even though it's a common screening and it's helpful to at least get a ballpark idea of where somebody is, it doesn't really help you make the diagnosis. And it never was intended to do that. Yeah. And I I think that especially if they have a lot of amnesia, it could be, you know, people may answer that they haven't had certain experiences that they might have had. That's correct. It's, It's just a little bit tricky. Yeah. So do you feel like that's enough on assessment or should we continue a bit? Well, that, I think for time's sake, that's Mm -hmm. a great introduction. And I think if I'm not mistaken, what we want people to take away most of all is that everybody should be assessing for dissociation in clients. Right. Because I think there are two dangers if you're not assessing. One is the danger of underdiagnosis, like not diagnosing somebody who actually has a dissociative disorder and could be treated for it. Mm -hmm. That's the bigger problem. The smaller problem is that there are lots of therapies now that use ego states. There's EMDR, there is internal family systems therapy, and some others that use this idea of ego states. And it's very important not to overdiagnose people with a dissociative disorder because they have ego states, because they're not quite the same. Everybody's got ego states. Not everybody has dissociative parts, and they can be distinguished from each other. So I think that assessment for both under and over diagnosis is really important. Yes. Thank you. And so the other thing that I hope you could talk about today, I mean, if there was a way in one hour to capture all of your knowledge, I'd be a wizard. But, you know, just to get a, a small taste of what you do, 
Right. If you could talk a little bit about the structural dissociation model, I think it's sure. a great guideline to help therapists understand, you know, why it makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And I think if if I could do anything in this podcast, it is to reassure people that dissociation is understandable. It's rational. It can be worked with in clinical practice with just a little bit of, you know, consultation, supervision, and learning, just like everything else you work with, it's not really bizarre. It is understandable. So I hope that for the next few minutes, I can talk in a way that helps it become more understandable. Demystify. Oh, we'll try. And, and you really have to sort of unlearn everything you've seen on television about DID because it's almost all pretty inaccurate because all of those shows show that parts are 100% completely separate and the therapist treats them like separate people. And neither of those things should be, well, they're not separate people and they should never be treated as separate people. You treat the individual as a whole with this fragmented sense of self so that when I'm working with people, I always say, this part of you, you know, this young part of you. So I'm always emphasizing that this is you, and I know it's going to take you a while to get there, but I'll walk that road with you until you can recognize this is also you. Yeah. And to, to really explain dissociation, I think you have to start with normal development in an infant and young child that we aren't born with an intact sense of self or personality. That's kind of a developmental achievement. And so we don't have a birth personality or a birth core original self. We have little islands of experience that are gradually coalesce over time in the context of a good enough environment. And so if you've ever seen little babies or little children, they switch states very rapidly and they have lots of dysregulation. And that's what we see in dissociative disorders, sort of abrupt state shifts without a smooth transition and lots of dysregulation. So over time, these kids learn to shift from one state to the other smoothly and kind of within a window of tolerance of regulation. And that's exactly what's missing in these clients, so that we want to help them shift between states in a smooth, kind of coherent way. So the, the idea of structural dissociation is that in the course of development, we all are driven or directed by what we call motivational or action systems, and attachment is one of them. We are biologically primed to attach to people. So these motivational systems are biological primers in some way. They're evolutionary prepared systems that direct our attention and our perception, our emotion towards certain things and away from others. So that attachment directs us toward connecting to other people. And we have to be in a certain physiological state in order to do that. We have to be in a a good regulated state to truly securely attach. But there are other 
systems that we have that are inborn that protect us from danger. And the most common two that we all know are the two called flight and fight. We all know flight and fight. That's the sympathetic nervous system that activates us to move away from danger or to fight and get it away from us. There are some others. There's freeze and there's faint, which is what the the deer or the gazelle does when the lion first grabs it. It just goes out into a dead faint because that's the most protective. And so a, a child who's being abused is struggling to deal, to, to be in states in which they can be attached, but they're constantly thrown into states in which they have to defend against threat. And these are totally different parts of our nervous system that are activated when we're under threat or when we're feeling safe and connected. There are different physiological states. There are different mental states. And so this poor child is trying to integrate these really discrepant polar opposite states that not only are mental and emotional, but they're physiological. And so this is where we think these divisions go between these motivational systems that divide divide between threat and attachment and daily life. One of one of the motivational systems of daily life is exploration. We're curious. We want to learn about our environment. And anytime these defenses are activated, it sort of quashes or deactivates not only attachment, but also curiosity. And in therapy, attachment and curiosity need to be activated for the therapist, for the client to really make headway. And so this is the conundrum in trauma therapy is to help the client continually move out of those defensive fight, flight, freeze, faint states into more relational, safe, cooperative and curious states. And so this is what our model really tries to address by addressing the different parts that are organized around these different motivational systems and working with the client as a whole, understanding that each client has a system of parts. And it's not the idea is not to work with one part at a time. That's not very integrated. But the idea is to work with the whole system to help parts begin to appreciate each other's functions, to collaborate in daily life, to function more as a team, at least as a team, and then gradually as one person. So our our process is not at all working with one state or part at a time, but to facilitate the the capacity of the client to first communicate between parts and then to cooperate, which gradually leads to integration. So I would say in a nutshell, a really quick nutshell, (laughs) that's what we do in the treatment of structural dissociation. Yes, thank you. And of course, it's way more (laughs) complicated (laughs) than yours three. Exactly. (laughs) But I think people can really understand the basic concept of how this develops and that it's not really separate people living in one body, then we can make some headway into really understanding in a rational way how to work with it. Yes. 
I think that for me, it's very helpful. It's like an anchor to be able to observe how parts and how feelings that are coming up, state mm-hmm. body sensations can be connected to particular action systems, like you said, trauma defenses. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, if a person is yelling at other people or they're, you know, having a lot of conflicts in their relationships, it's easy to notice that that could be a fight part, you know? Could be. It's possible. Yeah. And I'm sure that there, depending on how it's all happening, there could be other ways that it could be described as well with the different action systems. Yeah. 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 And I think the importance there is is really understanding for that particular client, you know, is it a fight part? Do they have a dissociative disorder? In which case, you have to build some communication and cooperation toward that part. Or is it more like an ego state where the person drops into fight a fight position and still feels, has a sense of this is me, but the the treatment is sort of this underlying the same, but you're adding in the addition if it's a fight part in a dissociative client you're adding this increasing collaboration and communication internally among parts. Yeah. For me, that that's, that's the most complicated part of the work. Yes, it is. And I think there's some ways to really work with that in a, a, a sort of spiral, gentle way to build these integrative group bridges between parts. I mean, that's, that's far more than we can talk about here, but there are some rational ways that use basic psychotherapy principles that we all know to be able to make that happen. So it's just important for people to know that 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 is a a good possibility. Yes. So in the time we have left, what would you like people to take away from this, from hearing what you had to say? Number one, that this is a common problem, particularly among people who have early developmental trauma, and that is much of the mental health population we see. Number two, it's important to go get training somewhere on assessing dissociation. I think it's very important to understand dissociation from a rational perspective, not from this hyped up perspective of different people inside, because that's not, it really doesn't help our clients to think in those terms. And if you have a client that you suspect might be dissociative, you know, get good consultation. There are tons of great trauma therapists who who do great consultation, who can help you take your first steps with a dissociative disorder client. And then you'll be able to realize, oh, you too can do this work. And it's not so terribly different from the work that you do with other complicated trauma survivors, and that it's it's doable in, in your own private practice or in your own agency. So I guess those are the big takeaway things. Yeah. And that's a very, you know, hopeful message because I think we can be those sensationalized portrayals that we were talking about can definitely scare the general public and professionals who would be working with people who have dissociative disorders into thinking that this is something, you know, I should fear instead of this is something that's common among probably many of the people I work with. And if I can help 
them to get an accurate diagnosis, they can get the right kind of help and become more integrated and feel much better. Right. And it not only induces fear, it induces skepticism like, oh, that can't be possible Mm -hmm. that somebody has a hundred personalities. That's true. They don't really have a hundred personalities. They have one. It's kind of fragmented. So I, I think understanding it and not being afraid of it kind of reduces our skepticism too, which is also important. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Almost two sides of the coin, fear or dismissal. Mm -hmm. Dismissiveness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is sort of the trauma conflict, isn't it? I'm going (laughs) to avoid it or I'm going to be overwhelmed by it. Yes. Deny it happened or I'm going to be overwhelmed by it. So it's interesting that we have these sort of repetitions of the trauma everywhere we turn. Boy, isn't that true? Metaphors for how trauma is in our lives are everywhere. It's pretty amazing. But I I think that, you know, when we can be curious with a client about what is it like to be you without making a judgment on it and just being curious about that client's experience and say, tell me more about it, then clients are going to tell you what's going on with them, whether it's dissociation or anything else. So my my goal with my clients and with, with my consultees is always to be curious and compassionate. If I can hold those two things, then I, f- I feel like I've had a good day. <laughs> <laughs> That's a pretty good general rule for all of us in the helping professions. Yeah, it is. Oh, Kathy, thank you so much for coming here to talk about this today. I'm very grateful for your your time and your obviously your immense knowledge and wisdom on this topic and how you're able to really put it into clear, understandable language as well. Thanks. I, I, I hope I've been able to do that. That's that's my goal. And people are certainly invited to contact me if they have questions. Yes. So whether they are wanting to ask you a question about our discussion or get consultation or find training, where can people find you? The best way to find me actually is on my website, which is www.kathy-steele, so kathy-steele.com. And I have my trainings up there, my publications. You can contact me for consultation there. So that's that's the best way to, to contact me. Wonderful. And would people find your books there as well? Yes. There there are some direct, direct links to Amazon. So you can go right on there. The My articles and book chapters, as many of them as, as are possible to put up there because of copyright laws, I have links to those that you can download them and read them too. Ooh, wonderful. Well, Thank you again. I will put a link to your website in the show notes for this episode. And I just can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on Therapy Chat today. Well, I really appreciate you having me, Laura. Thank you very much. Thank you to Therapy Notes for sponsoring this week's episode. I do love Therapy Notes. It's such an asset to my business and makes my job as a practice owner and a therapist much easier. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. Use coupon code CHAT or click the link in the show notes to get two free months at TherapyNotes.com. 
Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Thank you.